Kaiju FM. Come find your niche. Welcome to the latest episode of The Prestige, a podcast for people who love movies, recorded by people who love movies. I'm Sam, I'm an academic, writer, teacher, I've lectured in universities, taught in schools, and I currently work in the Sixth Form College. He's Rob, he's a podcaster, editor, author, and formerly had nearly a decade-long career in the movie industry traveling the world as part of that business sorting out things to do with color grading that nobody else knows anything about essentially i know how things work in theory and he knows how things work in practice and we bring these two different perspectives to our knowledge of the films that we'd like to watch we take a different film each week um, films you might know, films you might not know, and we are at the moment working through a season, mini season of heist films. We've done various other of mini seasons beforehand, and also looked at directors and franchises as well. We take a different movie each episode, like I said, and we talk about the significance of that in terms of culture and theory and history Uh, we end with recommendations linked to the episode's film in some way and we always start by talking about what else we've been watching so rob as i mentioned before about this time last year every halloween season i try and watch an entire franchise of a movie or movie franchise um so in previous years i think last year did all of the romero dead films the year before I did all the Halloween films. The year before that I did all the Friday the 13th films. This year I am doing all of the Critters films. It's a franchise that just passed me by the first time around. I've never seen any of them. My wife recommended it. So I am watching Critters 1, 2, 3, 4 and Critters Attack. The uh, recent reboot. It's in many ways it's kind of it's somewhere between a gremlin spoof and or gremlins homage takeoff um and an aliens takeoff and finds its own place from there it clearly references other movies it clearly references other franchise but it is slightly silly but a lot of fun with some really good effects i finished four last night so i've done one two three and four so far one starts in a farmhouse four takes place in an abandoned space station so the films ramp up over those four films great to see it go from one to four and it does have at least one character that follows through every four films Crit attack which i'm going to be watching this week is the 19 2019 reboot of the series so i should let you know how that goes it's interesting to see a film reboot after so many years um obviously horror movies reboot and restart and reimagine and sequelize ad infinitum over and over again but uh, this is, I certainly enjoyed the first four films. 
What, what are they about? They're about critters. They're about this alien race called critters, which are small furry creatures that fall to Earth and eat people. Oh. It's kind of like gremlins um, in their small and furry and angry. Um, and as they eat, they grow. And it's them. It's the culture clash of small town Americana and these violent, psychotic creatures from beyond the stars. And some alien bounty hunters who arrive to kill them. It is a, it kind of it just grabs from so many different other franchises and pulls them together, but it really works. And I, I think I quoted on on Letterbox. Like I watched four, and it's brilliant. It's a really good fun film, and it's so rare for the fourth of any franchise to be that good. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we did a, our, our last season was all about franchises, and some of the franchises like you can clearly see the dropping qualities it goes on. Yeah. Like four is as good as one, and that's very rare in a horror franchise. And so I've got five, the reboot, to go. So that's been me. Or what about you, Sam? Nothing in the way of films. I have watched the whole of the TV show, which, if you haven't watched, really need to see it now. It's the latest thing on Netflix, which Netflix seems to be putting out various things that are... um, Bake Off in a different guise. So we had the Big Flower Fight, and now we've got American Barbecue Showdown, which is just a great British Bake Off for barbecue cooking in America. And it's amazing, and Rob, you'd love it. I have seen it. It's sitting in my watch queue to get to at some point. Do. It's really good. There is, uh, there is several programmes like that where you kind of know the format already, and there's something sort of comforting about that. It's the same idea of different themed weeks and two fairly engaging and I didn't particularly, I've seen Rutledge Wood and other things and really get on with him there, but there's something about him here. He's just, well, both possessed, they're just so lovely to everyone involved and it feels much in the way that Greybridge Bake Off used to be and I think it might be moving away from that, but there's something very collaborative and very about camaraderie. And actually, this year with Bake Off, with them quarantined together, you get the same sense. But it very much feels with American Barbecue Showdown, they just want each other to do well. It doesn't feel so much like an antagonistic competition. That's always good. That's always good. As I said at the start, we are currently doing a mini-season of heist movies, and we are going through the years, and we have reached the late 90s, 1998 to be precise, with the British classic Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. If you can't see value here today, you're not up here shopping, you're up here shoplifting. Bacon. Did you say £10? That's a bargain, I'll take one. Eddie. You two, join me in my office. Fat Man. Oi! Soap. Four friends. That's my 25 grand. With a money-making scheme. Are you sure you can afford 25? I can afford it as long as I see it again. That's quick. You play cards tonight, son? With Harry? Easy. Oh, don't be silly, Dad. And very expensive. I'll see you. For half a million? All right, don't panic. Four young fellas got in deeper than they could handle. I am panicking. That owes me half a million pounds. So I'm going to give you one week to find it. Let me tell you about that, you Harry. If Harry don't kill you, then your father will. I've got a plan. 
How are the Artis fellas? James! We'll hit them as soon as they come back. We'll be prepared, waiting. We're on. Right, where was we? Guns for show. Nice work, bro. God knows how much of this stinking weight. Is this a declaration of war? A shitload of cash. No one's responsible for this torture. And a traffic order. Lockstock and Dismount Barrels, or Lockstock as it's generally known, is a convoluted crime caper. Uh, it is the debut feature film from Guy Ritchie, who has gone on to make a lot of movies. Um, and it tells the tale of four low-level chancer criminals. Well, three criminals and one legit, possibly. Um, who get in deep with a local crime boss, I suppose. Um, and it's about them trying to make the money to pay back the debt that they owe. Thrown in with this, you've got incompetent robbers and Vinnie Jones playing a hard man enforcer. It is incredibly complex, the plot, and to cover it would take hours. Um, but suffice to say, it is many, many different strands of the same story that kind of come together and touch each other and duck in and out to a somewhat satisfying conclusion. It is very British. It is very high energy compared to um, previous five movies. Um, and it plays a lot with the sort of the form and function of cinema as well as the form and function of heist movies. This film was huge in our teenage years, I'd say, Sam. Um, yeah. in, back in the late 90s, we were teenagers. Um, and this film absolutely dominated pop culture for a long time and still does to this day. The British crime movie there are thousands of imitators of Lockstock, some by Guy Ritchie, that have not very few have reached the same level of cultural impact. I recall liking this film a lot from my teenage years. Sam, how was it returning to it all these years later? It's interesting to watch teenage years there because I will okay, not very good, I still really like this film. Um Quite apart from that, I just wonder, it's so such an exercise in nostalgia for me. Like, I know this inside out. And it's like so many of the lines in it, I just feel are an important part of not just a might of, of pop culture in general, but my lexicon as a... I mean, I probably watched this illegally given it's an 18, as a 16, 17, 18, 19 year old. And it's just, yeah, it's just spot on. And Guy Ritchie didn't do anything close to it in the genre afterwards. And like you said, there are lots of imitators that haven't really come close. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And, but I do, I do wonder to what extent that was me loving something I loved as a 17 year old and it just it's just so I mean it, it, this is a fairly dated film and I'm, I don't say that's, that that's a bad thing because lots of the I was just thinking about the use of Ocean Colour scene at the beginning mm. and that took me right back and I just 
it, it dates to a time in life that I look back on fairly fondly. I mean, I didn't have a great time throughout the 90s and the early part of school, but sort of 17 and 18 were, were good times. Mm. And I just, yeah, th- this film for me reminds me of that. I absolutely can concur with all of that. This is a film, it's very hard to separate this film from our previous experience of watching it. This film is me discovering my film nerddom in many ways. You know, I was 16 when it came out, and that is the point in my life which birthed my obsession with film in the way that still echoes to this day. It's very hard to separate films like Lockstock and even later Snatch from that because it's British, it's exciting, it's popular, and it felt... It felt in contrast to the other popular films of the day. So you had films like The Full Monty, which is a good, good film. But my mum saw The Full Monty. My mum liked The Full Monty. My mum did not see and like Lockstock. Um, and so films like this and films like Trainspotting became this kind of alternative British cinema culture, which as a you know, teenage punk was like honey to me I suppose but I will try and separate it out from my sort of nostalgic rewatching of it and I do think it is a very good film I think it's very clever I think it knows the genres it's part of um, and, and having watched all these heist films over the last uh, four or five months now it really you can really see some echoes of other movies within it and it has that real 90s I suppose take on taking things that seen beforehand, blending them together, remixing them and coming up with something new. I'm sure I've gone in on the part of the show on my theory about the millennium and the impact of the millennium on culture in the late 90s that made us very inward-facing, very navel-gazing, very, the, not the birth, but the explosion of the remix culture and the explosion of these kind of self-referential meta-movies that we saw at that time were all about everyone everywhere looking back. And this is part of that. This film takes a lot of elements that we've known and seen before and remixes them together into something brand new. And I think that is, whilst, as we say, it's been almost aped and parodied to death, here we are, you know, 22 years later. But I think there's still some power in that original. And it is full of, like, brilliant British character actors and brilliant British like movie faces like, like the I mean uh, Eddie who is the main good guy is the probably the closest this film has to like a, a pretty boy leading man after that like it's just like these really worn British run down faces that are just really the texture of this movie is amazing sorry I could go on there's something there's something about this film that well, it even made Vinnie Jones look good. And, okay, okay, you didn't know anything about Vinnie Jones as an actor before this, so you knew he was a hard man footballer. And just Guy Ritchie turns him into something great. Big Chris in this is a brilliant character. So it's not just the, like you said, there's lots of um, gritty English talent in it, but it just 
feels like everything Guy Ritchie does in this film works. Absolutely, I think that's. I mean, it's for me particularly. It was the, I like this remix. Like, I didn't really know Vinnie Jones. I wasn't a football fan growing up. Still not really, um, but I knew the name. Like Vinnie Jones was a name people knew, and seeing mm. him play this hard man was something that was like exciting for me. And like Dexter Fletcher, I knew from Press Gang, um, where he plays like a slightly nerdy reporter, and in this he's you know, quite a violent criminal. And all these people who are kind of, oh, you know, like Jason Statham, who now is this mm. Hollywood star, but back then wasn't. Back then wasn't kind of nothing. Yes. And yeah. loads of people in this got their first break in this movie. And I think it's, it just really shows. Um, because it does, it feels... I suppose we've talked a lot about, part about realism, and I think that's an overused phrase because there's a lot of ways to slice realism. But this film feels like it exists in its own world. But it is a whole living, breathing world. Some movies you watch and you're like, well, these are the other people back in this world. Clearly no one else in this world matters. They're just, we are a backdrop and then this story playing out. In many ways, like a, a theatre play. And you haven't got mm. a cast of thousands, but you've got these people. Whereas this, it feels like this is a living, breathing world which we're seeing a small slice of, and that there are many stories before, after, and sideways the movie that we aren't seeing. Yeah. And I think that that, that yeah. works well. But I do think, for me, the biggest takeaway I had was this element of remixing, of taking things we'd seen before and using them again. You know, it's not that it's copying, you know, but it's just that kind of taking that homage, even if it's an unknowing, unreferenced homage, it's pulling together these disparate pieces of other movies and other cultural icons and making them work. I was just thinking about that, this slow motion bit mm. beginning, and it's become this thing that Guy Ritchie does. I mean, you see in, like, even the Sherlock Holmes film, sort of 15 years later, it becomes like he has a slow, slowed down action scene where you can focus on the different parts of it. And, I, I'm not knocking the Sherlock Holmes films. I actually quite like them, but there's not really a purpose to what he's doing there. I mean, okay, okay I suppose at a stretch you could say, well, Sherlock is you, you're seeing into the the uh, way way in which Sherlock Holmes can analyse things and put things into action before other people can see them, but. It felt like in Lockstock that slow motion really had a purpose. And it's like you're saying about the the millennium and the turn of the century that it feels like that I mean this this feels quite a quite a bit of a reaching point, but yeah, let's go with that. It it feels like the millennium was a time, like you said, time for looking back, but also time for just slowing down. And it feels mm. like that slow motion focus on something was important in the late nineties, in a way that's not really as important. So, Garish has taken this thing which was really important to him and to the world, to pop culture in the late nineties, and it's just become a bit of a gimmick for him, and a gimmick that sometimes works well, but it's kind of been divorced from. Its original meaning. See, I I actually disagree with you there um, on that. Okay. Um, I think for me, like this, I think the slow motion in this at the opening scene, 
um, has no purpose beyond looking cool. That's not a bad thing, okay. but I think that his purpose, he used it here because it looks awesome. The whole the, the, the suitcase flying open and all the products flying in the air, it looks ace. It's a really lovely moment. And I think that works. I think it really works in this movie. It has that real stylistic flair. You know what sort of movie you're getting into. You know, lightly lads, cheeky, running away, stylistically something. And it sets up mm. that movie. And then he liked the style. And as you say, it feels like he's used it again and again and again, but has, as his movies have moved away from that stylistically complex and out there tone of Lockstock, has felt the need to justify it more and more. So in, uh, Lock, yes. in Sherlock, he's like, well, no, but it, it's, it's him seeing it for the first time. Like, no, it can just be cool. It can just yeah. look cool. And that's like, I just think sometimes with these movies, you can just go, we're watching a film. It can just look cool. Explosions happen slower. You see them from three angles. It just looks cool. And it works here because it's just a stylistic overture. It just sets up the movie. You know, you got to look at I me. Mean, for me, the whole opening sequence felt like a different version of the train spotting sequence. The infamous choose life running through the streets, which is you rent and um, just running. Yeah. And it felt like another version of that. But this style, whereas I suppose, whereas train spotting, aside from the heroin infused like hallucinations, is in many ways grittily realistic. It's almost too realistic in its portrayal of these things. And by taking that element of this run through the streets, chased by the police, but remixing it into this stylistic, the, the, the look of the film is very different, it's all very stylized looking film, and the slow motions, you're taking what they know, and they're understanding that cultural reference of the triple running scene, but giving it this twist and this change, that means you take you somewhere new. Mm. I see what you're saying, this, um, you see this idea of stylistic and running through the streets, and it reminded yep. me, bizarrely of you know the music videos of Vindaloo it just feels like there was that element of yeah it feels like then that the running through the streets away from police is no longer sort of a homage to train spotting is more like I say sort of cheeky chappy and it, it's sort of it's walking through the streets of London in, in the Vindaloo video and the the sort of Keith Allen infused, and that seems to be what it is. That this this is now a Keith Allen aesthetic rather than necessarily mm. a Ewan McGregor sort of, um, well not Ewan McGregor, Evan Welsh idea. Yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying. Um, and I, I think for me, that's where the power of this movie is. Is is it takes elements you know and uses them as shorthands to tell stuff. Like, the other one that really struck me is the very final, very final shot of the entire movie. Um, when he's hanging off the um, side of the bridge and he's got the guns in one hand and the phone in the other and it's that moment of what do you do? What do you do? And you see him looking back and forth and like, what do you do? And that, it was, it's Italian job. You know, having watched that recently for this show like it, that 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 was the same reference you've got again like that cultural icon of this ending of Italian job is just referenced here again for a shorthand of like what do we do and it makes the ending 
not a not a sellout or not a cop out mm. because you know they're referencing a previous movie. So you you leave it having enjoyed a movie and getting a reference to a previous movie, which you probably also enjoyed. Yeah, you see, I wrote down the challenge job as well when I saw that ending, and then you mentioned it when we talked about it. But I, I feel that, I mean, not to compare their films, I just feel that this was, I, I thought this was a more successful ending. And there, there was something about the ending to the Italian job which has an element of bleakness about it, an element of, oh, we screwed things up, and yes, we can bleed the highs, but like everything's going to go wrong now, you know. And hold on, I've, mm. I've got a plan of Mark Kane at the end. It's just, you know he's, he's not got an idea about what's going to happen. You kind of think that Jason Fleming has got a way to work around it it's it's kind of an upbeat ending even though it is kind of a wink to the camera fourth wall break this is like the Italian job at the same time yeah. you think well actually there's something positive about this and they could survive. you've seen essentially in this film the, the four of them have lucked their way into doing well out of things like they were going to be killed several times and they just escaped through being in in the right place at the wrong time or the wrong place at the right time Mm. and you think after all that you think there's something essentially lucky about these four blokes and you kind of you kind of feel optimistic about that at the end yeah i think that's that's a very good point i do agree that the ending of Italian Job, as much as I enjoy it, it's kind of out of nowhere. Yeah. It kind of feels like everything's going to be fine and you need to twist at the end. Whereas here, because you've had the the role of these guns throughout the entire movie being mistaken by so many people as being worthless. Mm. Like, it's a recurring motif for the entire movie that the robbers think they're worthless and then Nick the Greek thinks they're worthless and then the guys think they're worthless and so rather than being like out of nowhere oh my god these guns are really expensive what are you doing like it's being built up and built up and this is another thing that I really like with the movie is this it really heavily relies on dramatic irony to sell itself now for those who don't know this is a theatre term I suppose which essentially is Something that the audience knows that the characters within the play don't. So, in this case, it's the guns are a great example. The audience knows they are expensive guns. So when they see them hurrying and rid of it, like as an audience, you understand what's happening, that it's a bad thing. And when you see the confusion happening between who's in the house and the shootouts, like as an audience, you understand the trick. We've talked last week about um, in the usual suspects about how the trick of the heist is that the movie lies to us, and before that, we have the character lying to us. This feels like that reaction, like the movie and the characters never lie to us in the film. Yeah. They get it wrong and they misunderstand, but we are the ones with the knowledge. We are the ones with the, I suppose, the holistic, the omnipotent knowledge of what's going on in the film because we have this narrator that helps us along, but. Here, the enjoyment of the movie is not the reveal and the twist, 
which we've seen in other movies, but the reveal of the information that we hold to the characters, and that's it's not even a growing sense of dread. It's the growing sense of solving the problem mm. ahead of the characters. And we've, we we talked a lot about the sort of the joy of competency in the heist films, and seeing the competency of these people, and no one in this is competent. No. Absolutely no one is competent. But no one is like laughably incompetent. Everyone is has a level of competency that makes it work. Yeah. I think also there's something something about the forum that because other people are not quite competent enough, they manage to get through and they seem more competent than they are or they seem seem to have more success than than we feel they should i think i was thinking about um the the card game where things go wrong and eddie loses the money but and i was thinking about that you you've got this narrative set up of a cocky youngster I mean he's not he wasn't you know because he was 29 but that's what he is he's the cocky youngster in amongst um, all these card shops and you feel that there's a sort of downfall of the cocky youngster narrative coming up and you have this in other films where you get someone being overconfident and then losing everything but he doesn't fail because of that. He is still an amazing card player. He fails because they cheat. And mm. we get that as an audience. We understand the unfairness of that. And it feels like because of that and so many other instances like that in this film, we're just on the side of the protagonist. And I think a lot of what this, what makes this film work is the fact that we go along with, and we are, we feel feel sympathy for, empathy for these characters. I, I agree. It's that, I suppose that feeling of, not a mouse caught in a trap, but a feeling of, as you say, these characters are our characters we root for. And there's a real sense of like, oh, come on, come on, no, as you watch it. Because you do see them getting caught in these traps, and not avoiding them. And every time you hope they will, they don't. And that applies to everyone in the movie. Mm. Um, and I just think you're right. You do you do root for them, even when they're making mistakes. Like, like Hatchet Harry, like you've got to presume he's going to cheat. Mm. But it's that so many people, despite being criminals, expect honesty. And the Hatchet Harry... Cheating at cards feels like a betrayal. Yeah, yeah. Because there's there's somehow this feeling of honesty among thieves, and we've talked a lot about that, I suppose, over these last eight episodes about this honour of thieves and the honour of criminality, and Hatchet Harry using tricks to steal money from his fellow criminals feels like a betrayal of that. Yes, yeah. Whereas the rest somehow. In inverted commas, are honest criminals who are honest with the criminals about who they are, and it's just—it's very—I don't know what the word for it—but the gradations of ethics when it comes to B 
being criminals who generally steal from other criminals. Yeah. You know, the, the, aside from the opening sort of patter on the street where they're trying to sell clearly stolen um, um, perfumes, this is entirely criminals hitting criminals kind of thing. Yeah, I see what you're saying. There's something morally we feel that actually Harry cheating is worse than, say, Roy Breaker spitting alcohol on someone's face and lighting it on fire. Like, there's something... Like, you get the feeling they're all criminals in this pub and this guy had it coming to him and you don't stand up to a psychopath like this. And you think, well, it's a horrible thing to do, but... Like it seemed to make sense, and it was there was something fundamentally honourable about it, which sounds really weird to talk about mm. sort of like that. But I see what you're saying. There's there's an expected honesty among thieves, and Hajari has stepped outside that. I wonder. Talk talks about remixing a fair bit, and I just. I just wonder whether that sort of feeds into what this film is about that. We don't really know where the heist is in this film. I think everything's a heist. Yes, and that's that's what I, I was just thinking about it. Like, wait, like, who's stealing from whom? Everybody. You, you have the robbery of the house at start to get the guns by the two northerners. You have the robbery of the weed dealers by Dog and his crew. The robbery of Dog and his crew by R four lads. Um, then you have the robbery of their stuff back by Dog. Dog gets robbed by yeah. Chris. Um, and then at the end, I think, so at the end, Big Chris keeps the money and they keep the guns. And yeah, I think that's it. But like the whole, it, it, that's where this movie, I think, excels is this constant overlapping of. Um, different heists and who's screwing who but it all in not even in like in good humor or good faith but somehow it feels like mm. these are honest crimes do you have some recommendations for us i do and this week i've got three actually um one of them is um thematic it's nothing to do with the actors involved it's from the same year as lockstock and it's a film i talked about the narrative of the cocky youngster and hubrisically going over the top of that something and losing everything. And it's Rounders, um, in which Matt Damon plays a young car shop and he gets taken for his money by a, I mean, just brilliantly accented John Markovich. It's just an insane mm. Russian accent. Um, and the whole film is about his sort of his redemption and his relationships with his girlfriend and his best friend over Norton, and it's really good. I really enjoy it. Um, two links to the actors involved. Um, first one is someone we've talked about as a big Hollywood name now, Jason Statham, and one of the films that. Um, mark him as a big Hollywood action hero is The Mechanic from 2011 a sequel as well um, but I think it's a mistake to dismiss it as sort of well it's just a big budget 
action film and it's Jason Statham doing what Bruce Willis did and Die Hard and Liam Neeson does and Taken and it, you know exactly what you're going to get. There's something about it, it sort of lays the groundwork for John Wick in this idea of um, there's something a bit more cerebral about it and I, and I really quite enjoyed it. Um, although that might be just me liking Actionville. And my second one, um, second actor recommendation, is to the 2010-14 TV show Rev. Um, I believe, well, one, one of the boys, I believe Dexter Fletcher was in it. Um, and it stars Tom Hallander and Livy Coleman as a He's sort of troubled husband and wife pairing, and he is the um, titular rev in charge of a particular parish in central London. And it was great, and it was on BBC Two at 10 o'clock. And it was gentle and piercing and black and very funny. And um, yeah, thoroughly recommended rev. Fair enough, fair enough. I've, I've talked to my novel too, but one of them is Dexter Fletcher, um, who has gone on to do a lot of direction as well as um, acting. And he directed a film from about five years ago that I caught in the cinema on a whim and really, really deeply enjoyed. And that is Eddie the Eagle. Now, I do not know how this film will play outside of the UK. I don't know how much Eddie the Eagle matters outside of the UK. Um, but for those who aren't aware Eddie the Eagle was a ski jumper from the UK who wasn't very good but was a personality and a character and achieved a large level of renown and fame because of it and this movie is the tale of him becoming a ski jumper an Olympic ski jumper um slightly fictionalized certainly um played by Tan Egerton with Hugh Jackman as his trainer it is it's just brilliant. It's heartwarming and soft and funny and really, really, really brilliant. And Dexter Fetcher is really making a name for himself and making some really interesting and good films. And I'm loving forward to seeing what he might bring in the future. My second recommendation is an actor, I say loosely, um, who we talked a lot about in this show. And that is Vinnie Jones. He has produced quite a lot of movies. Most of them I would not recommend you see. Most of them have not been good films. He has played heavily into his hard man character and hasn't stretched himself. And ended up making many forgettable action and, and hooligan movies. That being said, he started strong with... Um, Lockstock, and he followed it up with a film that I have a deep affection for, and that is the 2000 film Gone in 60 Seconds. This is a Nick Cage, Angelina Jolie car theft movie in which he plays the mute mechanic Sphinx. The film is silly and over the top and stupid and amazing in every single way. Um, it's got, I think, it's got. Uh, Christopher Eccleston in it as the bad guy who is a carpenter and also a car thief. It is just, it's that height of like the late 90s, early noughties, high tech thriller 
um, in which technology was this amazing new thing rather than being the bane of all our lives. It's just a lot of fun. And he is good in it. He has that charisma you see in Lockstock. He brings it to bear in this movie. In a film which has a lot of charisma in it already. He is an integral part of that. It is a remake, I think, of a 60s film. I prefer the remake a lot. And it's a film that I think has kind of mostly been forgotten in this day and age. So if you haven't seen it and you have any interest in like good fun, millennial action movies gonna see seconds is it's just a really good film and he's good in it brilliant so guys we will be back in two weeks time with the next episode in our heist movie we're moving forward from 1998 all the way through to 2004 this is our penultimate episode and heists and we are looking at the 2004 high school heist movie the perfect score Till then, guys, you can find me online at Kaiju FM. You can find me at life underscore academic. And you can find both of us at the Prestige Podcast. If you like our show and you'd like to help us grow the show, please leave us a review or a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. Or tell a friend, tell your family, tell a stranger on the street, tell someone about us. We would love to get ourselves in front of more people. And we'll see you guys back here in two weeks. Mm-hmm.